0: I pray as we, uh, as we start this section of the service. So Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your presence, the sweetness of your presence. We thank you, Lord, that um, you don't call us to religion, you don't call us to um, climb mountains for you or jump over hurdles before you'll accept us, but that you welcome us. We thank you. Thank you for that tremendous assurance that we can have that you love us wherever we are right now, whatever we've been doing, whatever we've been thinking, whatever we've been feeling, that you love us and that you welcome us. And so, Lord, um, as we think about this subject, which can be difficult, can be painful, can be embarrassing, we just pray you'd be with us. By the power of your spirit, we want to be on fire for you, one hundred percent in every area. And so, we invite you in, Lord. We invite you to speak to us tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. Okay, so um, I've been asked to talk about this rather interesting subject of whether Christianity, whether the Bible is right about sex. I think we'd all agree that um, we live in a culture, we live in a society where. We're all looking for love, and we're bombarded constantly with that desire for love, for a partner, for a relationship. And um, the story is told of a woman who was walking along a beach, and she stumbled on a genie's lamp, so it was obviously a true story. She picked it up, she rubbed it, the genie pops out, and the amazed woman says, Oh, good, am I going to get three wishes? Julie said, no, I'm afraid that due to inflation, constant downsizing, low wages and and third world debt, I can only grant you one wish, so what's it going to be? Make it good. The woman didn't hesitate for a moment. She said, see this map she produced from her handbag? I want peace in the Middle East and want these particular countries to stop fighting each other. Jeannie looked at the map and said, "'Listen, lady, those countries have been at war "'for thousands of years. "'I'm good, but I'm not that good. "'Make another wish.'" The woman thought for a moment, and she said, "'You know, I haven't ever been able to find "'quite the perfect man. "'One that's considerate and fun, "'likes to cook and helps with the cleaning, "'is attractive, gets on with my mother, "'doesn't watch thoughts all the time, and is faithful. "'That's what I wish for, the perfect partner.'" The genie let out a long sigh and said, okay, give me the map back. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: okay,
0: we okay. uh, We live in a society um, where we're constantly thinking about this subject, and I think um, the image of the church in people's minds often is that somehow the Bible or the church or religion is there to make you feel guilty things that you've done to make you feel somehow that sex is unclean, that it's impure, it's something that we just you know mustn't think about, mustn't do. Or that it's an idol, that you're not ever going to be fully fulfilled until you're married with 2.4 children, a pair of green oneies, a Labrador and a Volvo. <laughs> and you won't be able to lead in God's kingdom until you've got that area sorted in your life and everything is on hold. Until that is accomplished. So, the teachings um, of scripture about sex may surprise us. And I just want to sketch out um, a little bit tonight, and then I'm going to invite my friend David Bennett, who's here, to come and share some of his story.
1: It may come as a
0: surprise to some of us that the portrait of sex in the Bible is extremely positive. God <coughs> thought of it. He gave this amazing, wonderful gift to human beings. There's a whole book of the Old Testament devoted to extolling the beauty of sex and showing God's delight in what he's made pleasurable and good. The beginning of the Bible lays a foundation for a Christian and a Jewish view of sex right there, right at the beginning of God's book. In other words, it's important the early chapters of Genesis tell us that God made the first man and the first woman and seeing what he'd made, he declared them very good. Now, we don't go into, he doesn't go into distinctions about differences between male and female, but it's absolutely clear that both are the intentional creation of God and both are called to be the image of God in the world. They're not identical, but they're complementary. But when the man sees the woman, he recognises somebody like him and yet unlike him. And he's intrigued by this otherness and sameness. Now, it's interesting, often people um, get a bit hung up on the fact that Eve is called Adam's helper. And uh, immediately, probably lots of us have a mental picture of a woman in an apron, (laughs) chained to the kitchen sink, with a baby on her leg, arms deep in bubbles washing up. That's what it means to be a man's helper, right? Well, the word in the Hebrew there has nothing to do with that. There's no patriarchy whatsoever in this word. The word in Hebrew is the word ezer. And God actually uses that word to describe himself in his relationship to us. He is our helper. God is our ezer. So there's no patriarchy here. Genesis provides then the original context for sexual intercourse and shows that God has designed this wonderful, beautiful thing to be expressed in a lifelong marital relationship between one man and one woman. And that union has greater significance than just the experience in and of itself of those two individuals. The union of the man and the woman has theological significance when we read the Bible, we don't resonate with a culture that tells us that human beings are there for one another's sexual consumption, to be easily disposed of when we grow tired or bored and move on to someone else. In fact, the Bible's radical vision of sex as something beautiful and theological and overwhelming, I think, puts a bomb under what society says about this thing. God says to the man and the woman in Genesis one Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Here, one verse after the poetry of the man and woman being made in the image of God, Genesis 127, we read this command to fill and multiply and fill the earth. In other words, the first thing God ever asks people to do is to consummate their relationship and procreate the human race. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? When you think people think religion is a bit prudish about sex. The man and the woman are distinguished from the rest of creation in that they're made in the image of God. They also mirror this amazing pattern of pairing that we see in the text. You see other commands to be fruitful and multiply given to the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea. And this pattern of pairing of two things. Making one thing that are inherently composed of two parts is seen throughout the chapter, and it's actually throughout scripture. God separates light from darkness, waters above from waters below, the earth from the sea, the evening from the morning, the sun from the moon, the day from the night, and into that context of paired unities, humanity is created. And all of these pair of unities, they're couples that fit together inherently and they're in relationship with one another. And so the man and the woman are created as a pair. And then in their collective humanity, they are the partner, the second person in a pair, in a couple to God. There's this beautiful, theological, transcendent vision of the unity of a man and woman in sexual union. In other words, what the Bible has to say about sex is not dirty, it's not frigid, it's not lame, it's beautiful, it's amazing, it's transcendent. The early, the eternal relationship then of the Holy Trinity is imaged in this relationship of the man and the woman and their implied procreative family. There's this um, extraordinary theological vision of of human marriage reflecting something of the nature of God. And then marriage also reflects something of the saving act of God. Genesis 3.15 tells us, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the first messianic prophecy. The first prophecy of Jesus. Is going to come into the world in history and crush Satan. And that prophecy is given to a woman rooted in that commandment given to two human beings to procreate. It's the offspring of these archetypal human beings who will crush Satan's attack upon their descendants. Marriage is important theologically. And it's the primary image that God chooses to describe the covenant relationship between himself and his people, an unbreakable bond of love between a pair. Unity in diversity, sameness and otherness in a pair describe not just a man and woman coming together in a marriage, but the joining of God with his people. Marriage um, and the, the Christian view of sex is... Beautiful, it's transcendent, it's theological, but it is not meant to be an idol. It is not an end in itself. In fact, as we read the Bible, we see all kinds of different loving relationships um, described for us. Love expressed in close friendships, often between people of the same sex. David and Jonathan were very close friends. Christ Himself. Had close friends who he spoke of on a par with family, and even had a closest friend, the beloved (coughs) disciple Jane. And so it's critical as we begin to think about this question of sex in our society that we learn to value the place of non-erotic close friendships where love, different kinds of love, are expressed. It's in that context that we see there are many people in the Bible who abstain from sex for their whole lives, living a single life. Jesus himself lived this way. And in Matthew 19, verse 12, he specifically commends people who choose to do this for whatever reason. It may be that they were born this way, perhaps impotent or maybe with a strong (coughs) same-sex orientation, or whether they've been made this way by other people, perhaps castrated courtiers, or whether they've been called to renounce marriage because of the kingdom of heaven. So I just want to begin by giving us a positive biblical vision for this beautiful thing before we come on to ask some other deeper questions. And one question that probably springs to mind right away is, well, what about homosexuality? If the Bible has this beautiful vision of a faithful, committed sexual union between a man and a woman? What about gay relationships? Where do they fit in? I want to, at this moment, just say that I recognise that this question is going to be asked in a different way by different ones of us in this room. For some people, this question is purely theoretical. It's an abstract question that's interesting at the level of an idea. For others of us in this room, this question is deeply personal. And so I want to be careful, I want to be humble, I just want to share um, some thoughts and then we're going to hear from David. So I want to give you four headlines that I've found helpful in approaching this question and how we come to conclusions um, about this question. And the first headline is the question of Morality on what basis do I make any moral decision? Not just the decision about who I may or may not sleep with. Is there a decision-making process that guides me to make the moral decisions that are going to shape my life? Well, for the Christian, the ultimate source for morality is God. Now, we recognize that... Broadly, there are going to be three alternatives as to where we get our morals from, how we, how we live. We may ground our morality in social contracts. In other words, we think well, morality is determined by groups who get together and decide what is going to be right or wrong for that group together. That may be a society, or it may even um, be a smaller subsection, a kind of tribal group within a society. But basically, there's no objective foundation for that morality. It's it's a social contract. Or, secondly, we may derive our morality from personal preference. I do what makes me feel good. The ultimate arbiter of my morality is me. Or, there's a third possibility, that there is a transcendent source for morality. And so I look to that source outside of myself, And I follow, I follow somebody else, a moral law giver. Now this isn't to say, of course, that people who don't believe in God can't have morals or behave morally. Uh, It's about the grounding of that morality, where we get that morality from for atheists. It's not located in God. It's going to be in personal preference or societal taboo. Richard Dawkins says, we supply our own basis for ethics. When it comes to Christians, we don't do that. We look at the world and we think, well, don't IS believe that what they're doing in Syria is right? And haven't they constructed a social contract? Haven't they got a group of people together who've agreed that what they do is right? Who are we to say that what they do is wrong? Or don't racists believe that they are morally right in the delusions of their superiority? And racist societies have legalized such notions in social contracts. Who are we to say they're wrong? It's only if there's a God who's a moral lawgiver who transcends my personal preference or that of a cultural specific society, that morality really makes sense, I would argue. So then when it comes to sex as a Christian, my beliefs are not primarily determined either by what I feel or by what my society says, but they're determined by a transcendent source. In other words, sex is too important and too beautiful to be primarily decided by me. What God thinks matters. And it does seem that the Bible calls us to keep sex within a committed marriage between a man and a woman, or to abstain from it. That would be my first sort of headline. My second headline would be this whole question of love and fulfilment. Our society tells us that love and fulfilment as human beings must be experienced by everyone all the time in having sex. We are less than human if we're not having sex. And the pressure on younger and younger people to be lovable and to be really experiencing love is therefore a pressure to be having sex younger and younger. Um, a study said, but released by Google in 2012, said that what is love was the most searched phrase on Google in 2012. In other words, the world's most powerful search engine tells us the human race is literally searching for love. Now, if someone were to feel, I'm gay, and you seem to be saying, I can't get married, wouldn't they be denied the possibility of love and fulfilment in life? If the way we find love and fulfilment is by having sex. I want to suggest to you um, this evening that there are two rival narratives about love that we can live by. And they fundamentally disagree with each other, they're radically opposed to one another. The first narrative tells us, in order to find love, present the best side of yourself to the world. Be better with the help of the self-help industry. That way you can be lovable, you can be thin, you can be rich, you can be successful. Present yourself well and find the best lovers along life's nice road. Take as much sex as you possibly can along the way Fill yourself while you're young and only settle down when you're older, fatter and uglier. Love is a consumer sport, a bit like shopping. Find what you can, what you like, what you can, get hold of it. And when you're finished, move on to a better model. But there's a different narrative, a rival narrative. And this narrative claims that those other routes to love will never ultimately satisfy. In fact, they will only make you hungrier, a bit like the Turkish delight in the line of Witch, and the Wardrobe. The more you eat, the hungrier you become. This second narrative tells us that true love is real and that we were created to experience it, but it's rooted ultimately in meeting, encountering our Creator. Jesus says, don't work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give you. The Bible offers us this unique narrative of where love and meaning are found. And so we're faced with two alternatives. Either, unless you're having sex, you're not fully human, you can't be fulfilled, and you can't really experience love. Or the other narrative which hundreds of years ago the writer of the Old Testament book Ecclesiastes put like this, he said God has made everything beautiful in its time and he has set eternity in the hearts of men. In other words, in you there is an ache for the eternal and it's only the love of the eternal creator that can fulfill that. Far from denying us love and fulfillment, Jesus claims that only him Can we find those things at the deepest level? And I suggest to you this evening that that is a testable claim. That is a claim that you can investigate and discover whether there's any any reality to yourself. Thirdly and briefly, identity. Well, many people will say this or that particular sexual identification or gender identification is who I am. So how can a reasonable human being challenge another human being's identity? That would be wrong. That would be to take away someone else's dignity. And here again, I think we can ask an important question. Where is my value, where is my identity rooted? Is it rooted in my sexuality? Or is my my identity rooted in the truth that I am created in the image of God? that you are created in the image of God, and that all human life is sacred and precious. Again, there are two rival narratives, and I suggest to you that what the Bible says is not demeaning, it's not diminishing, it's not dehumanizing, it's not a reductionist view, reducing our humanity to one thing. The Bible calls all human life sacred and created in the image of God, It's interesting to me that, again, one of Britain's leading atheists, a guy called Matthew Parris, who writes for the Times, and he writes quite a lot around um, issues of sexuality as well. And um, he commented on this, on on how the narrative, how some of the discourse around this this subject matter has shifted. And uh, this is someone who's gay writing from this perspective themselves. He says, um, same-sex male attraction used to be something you do, not something you are. And then he passionately writes, we are not two separate tribes, the straight and the gay. He's trying to say there are not two types of human beings, straight human beings and gay human beings. He's saying we're not two tribes. There are not two categories of people. We're all people. And so I ask you the question tonight, where is your sense of identity rooted? Is it rooted in something greater, something transcendent that calls you to value and uphold human dignity? And as Christians, whatever our response to this question of sex and homosexuality, our response must reflect that truth that God values and loves every human being. And that we're not defined in a reductionist way by one aspect. Then fourthly and lastly, the fourth heading, and if we can have two chairs, it, not sex. the fourth um, heading would be holiness. And that is to say that there is a real call and a cost on every person to follow in Christ, and that is going to include the area of our sexuality. Um, and the Bible's teaching of sex is radically countercultural, whether we're single and called to celibacy, or whether we're married and called to faithfulness, perhaps even in a frustrating marriage. You know, um, I came across a study recently of the early church that was arguing that the earliest Christian churches were known primarily not for the miracles that occurred in their midst. They were known for the way they conducted themselves sexually. I read on, I couldn't believe this article. And what it was saying is that the faithfulness in, of, of monogamous relationships and the commitment to celibacy, those two things, ran so counter to Greco-Roman culture that they shook the very foundation of the ancient world. They were extraordinarily powerful as witnesses to Jesus Christ in the world. Paul taught in 1 Corinthians that it does matter what we do with our bodies. There is a sacredness to, um, to our flesh, to this physical world, whether that's the creation or our own bodies. And so in some ways, our holiness needs to be lived out practically and physically. So if the questions of morality, of love and fulfillment, and identity can be settled by Jesus, Can we trust him to call us to a life of holiness that is both realistic and beautiful? I want to end with that question and now I'm going to sit down and introduce David to you. So um, David is a great friend of mine now. Um, He's been part of the OCCA for how, how long? Three years. Three years. He's from Australia, and, and David, can you share a bit of
1: your story with us? Where you're from, um, at what age you sort of realised um, your sexuality? Sure, thanks Amy. Yeah, so um, I come obviously from Sydney, Australia, which, is the second, which has the second largest gay lesbian population. So when I was growing up, I was in a conservative Church of England boys school, and basically started to discover around the age of 11 that I was same-sex attracted. Um, And so when I was in that context, it was incredibly difficult for me. No one had come out in my school. I didn't know kind of, everything was on the internet for me. Everything was mediated, everything was kind of in an ideal world instead of in reality. And I remember being at my um, Christian uncle's place and all my uncles, including also my father, um, made kind of homophobic comments. And I knew deep down that I had this attraction to men. And so I internalized this kind of self rejection. And Henry Nouwen, who himself was a um, celibate, same sex attracted Catholic priest, he says that the greatest kind of enemy to the true spiritual life, the life of the beloved in Christ, is not fame, popularity, it's actually this self rejection. And I think what we're seeing today. Um, in a lot of our culture is actually an anger that actually comes back to a self-rejection in the gay rights movement so I became quite a radical gay rights activist and I kind of I just the church didn't have an answer for me and I was like that's not enough what you're saying to me is not enough for me to live my life I can't just be celibate do you expect me to give up this this romantic like aspect of who I am, like, that's ridiculous and yet no one in your congregation that I see is really celibate, you're all married and happy and like what am I just meant to be miserable then, you know this kind of you know, voice and I just didn't understand that and so um, I came out when I was 14 and told my parents and then actually went through quite a spiritual, quite a tumultuous searching journey trying to find God or Meaning of life, and I kind of came to this point in my walk where I was kind of an indie alternative type involved in left wing politics, was at the gay rights marriage marches, used to tear down Christian union posters at university and slap over a gay marriage, march poster, and be like, yeah, justice, you know? And so, <laughs> and so I would have been someone who would be sitting in the audience tonight, probably like, oh, you know, these Christians. But God had started to work on me at that point of my life. And um, I actually came to the point where I got myself into a love triangle with two my best friend and his boyfriend, and it was a lot like a Woody Allen film, and they never end well. And so, you know, I actually watched a Woody Allen film with my best friend's boyfriend, and it led into this kind of adulterous situation. My name's David, so I suppose it was a bit like the Old Testament. I just discovered my own sin. I discovered that it didn't matter what the ethics I had in my head. If my heart wanted something more, nine times out of ten, it, w- it would win. And I think... I started to wake up to the fact that I was broken. Um, And so, fast forward from this point.
0: You used to go into clubs and ask people questions. Oh yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. So Amy was talking in her talk about the question, what is love? So one night, um, around this time actually as well, I was going to Oxford Art Factory in Sydney, which is like the alternative club, with like the fine arts establishment. Everyone's there, you know, party time. And um, <laughs> I had my journal um, with me, and I used to ask a philosophical question because I was so avant-garde. And <laughs> this time, I was like, you know what, this love thing, we talk about it in our songs, we talk about it in our arts, and my gosh, like, what is it? What is love? You know, no one, like, no one has a real definition. So I wrote this, this question down and passed it around to the club, and people would have all sorts of reactions to it, some like scoffing and others sarcastic, and I took back all the responses, I read them, and not one response was a decent definition. It had some austere quote from a philosopher. Then I had, what is love? Baby, don't hurt me, about like, probably 50 times. So then I just kind of was indignant, and I'm like, you're all the future leaders of the Australian nation, and you can't give me a decent definition of love. Um, and then I ended up Christmas time, 2008, in front of my evangelical. Christian relatives, a Christmas dinner table, and so it's a Greek family, so religion and politics are on the table, and we pick one every single Christmas, (laughs) this time it was religion, (laughs) and so my Christian lawyer uncle, who voted for the opposite side of politics than I did, he said to me, and I said to him, you Christians think, you know the absolute truth. Well, let me tell you, I've studied postmodern philosophy at university, and I can tell you, you can't even produce an absolute truth out of your mouth, because language doesn't deliver truth. It can't. It's, bro- it's a broken system. The author is dead, okay? <laughs> there is no God. Wake up and smell the coffee is basically what I said to my uncle. So my uncle turns around to me and says, well, David, the problem with your statement is, first of all, if you say there's no absolute truth, that's an absolute truth. And I was like, oh. No. Concept? Yeah, anyway. And then the second one was you know, the truth I believe in isn't a concept in my head, it's a person that I know. I'm not saying I know everything about the truth, but I know that person. And that's the claim of us as Christians. We're saying we know a person who is the truth. And that just made so much sense to my kind of phenomenological postmodern mind that it was encountering a person, not just knowing truth in my head which is what I'd been raised with. So at this point, I storm out of the room, furious, completely defeated. <laughs> and then my uncle leans over to my, my aunt and says, um, I have a prophecy. And my aunt's like, what? <laughs> David is going to be saved in three months' time. And I see the Holy Spirit over him. Did you, did you see that? David just stormed out of like, the room. I don't think he's going to, like, are you sure you heard from God? Yeah, yeah no, that's what he said. I see it, the Holy Spirit's on David. Okay, so if we fast forward then, three months later, I'm in a pub in central Sydney in the Gay Quarter, it's called the Dolphin Hotel, I go up the stairs, and there's this amazing, I'm the student editor of the magazine at this point, and so there's this girl there that was in my year, and she she had made it into, or sorry, the year above me, and had graduated, and she'd made it into um, Tropfest film competition which is the biggest film competition in the world and she was you know Everyone was talking about her at university and I wanted an interview with her to get the best article So I go up to her and I'm like, Genevieve hey, how are you? You know, and she's like good how, and how did you make it into this film competition? And she said to me do you want the real answer or the interview answer? And I was like, I want the real answer. So she says to me It was God surrounded by these good things everywhere. There's <laughs> another one. Oh my gosh, get away from me. <laughs> you know, that's kind of like the, the little voice in my head. And then she's like, well, saw the reaction on my face and then said, well, what do you think there's a God? I'm like, there must be something, but not, 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 not organized religion. And I mean, I'm homosexual. I've read 1 Corinthians 6 and I've read Romans 1 and I know that I'm just not, you know, gonna make it into that kingdom, am I? Kind of thing, you know? And she's like, well, actually, I don't think that really matters. Have you experienced the love of God? I was like, What? Who is this girl? She just says, I feel the presence of God right now, and I really need to pray for you. He loves you so much and you can't even believe that like, right now like, this isn't normal. Like I don't usually feel this. This is strong. Like I need to pray for you now. And I'm like, what, you know? And I'm in this kind of war, and finally I just say, Yes, you can pray for me. And then, you know, you're a good agnostic. You have to be open to To prayer, otherwise, you're intellectually dishonest. So I said, finding a proof, I didn't think anything was going to happen. So Genevieve launches into the Christian prayer of the century, and I say to Amy, I've inherited her prayer style. Hallelujah! <laughs> the blood of Jesus, the blood of the Lamb, cleanse David now. You know, things like this, like, ew, blood, Lamb, ew. <laughs> I'm, i how does you know, like, glory come, you know, all this kind of stuff. I'm just like, what? <laughs> and so she's praying, and I just kind of, like, go into this cocoon, and she, you know, she's praying, praying, praying. And suddenly, on the top of my head, I just feel, like, this tingling sensation. I'm like, oh, my gosh, what is that? Like, this Bible is real? You know, this, whoa, whoa. And it's getting, like, stronger and stronger. And it was, like, someone taking a glass of, or, like, kind of vial of oil and pouring it over my head. And it was, like, this beautiful sensation all the way down through my body. And it's, like, and in that moment, something eternal happen. It's like time stopped, you know, and Amy, you talk about Kairos moments, where time stops, you know, and it was one of those, and it was just, I was like, yes, this is what I've been searching for. This is the love that I've tried to find in all my nine boyfriends. (laughs) All my, like, searching, this is it. And um, so she keeps praying for me, and has... She does, I hear this voice say, do you want me? And then it's, hello, creator of the universe, <laughs> <laughs> hi. <laughs> i shh, <wish>. stop it. <laughs> you know, creator of the universe, you know. hello, again, do you want me? Yeah. And then again, do you want me? And every time I think about this moment, I just think of how amazing our God is, that he would get down and say to me, a man, who is man that you are mindful of him, and say, do you want me? How humble is that? Like, and he's saying that to me. Like, it's almost like a lover was speaking to my heart and saying, do you want me? And it was exactly what I was searching for. And so I said, yes. And then at that point, I saw a veil over my heart, a pinprick of light come straight into the center of my being. Can someone breathe like this into me? And then I said to Genevieve, I'm breathing without breathing. What's <laughs> happening to me? And she's like, you are being born again. Hallelujah. Like, it's amazing. And I'm like, okay. And, oh, my gosh. That's what my aunt would say. Ew. You know? Like, <laughs> but I'm just like, okay, great. Yeah, wow. And she's like, I'm going to keep praying for you. I'm like, great. And as she's praying for me, I hear this voice again. Will you accept my son Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And then it is the war of wars. It's like do, do, do. You know? And I feel one side get away from the crazy fundamentalist now. You are being brainwashed, the other side is saying Yes. And just I don't know, it's like the grace of God just produced this yes out of me. It was amazing. And then the love of God was just poured out all over me and I just couldn't stop weeping and my body was so hot, generally we had to go to the bar and get a flannel and wipe me down. And then we catch, we catch the taxi home, get home. My mom's waiting up. She's there, She said, have you broken up with another guy? You look terrible. And of course she'd become a Christian three years before this. And I said, you have to choose between the God that hates me and me. And of course I'm a real human being standing in front of you. Like you should choose me, you know? She said, by loving God, I love you better. And so I think sometimes if we're faced with that kind of virulent thing, just say, by loving God, you know. Anyway, so she says to me, you know, I say, I think I've become a Christian. Just very sheepishly to her, and she's like, oh my gosh, I made a covenant with God. And if he saved you, you're impossible to save. So he must be the God of the impossible. And I said, I'd give my whole life. If he saved you, and I pray, and yeah, yeah, hallelujah, kind of thing, and running around the house like a crazy woman. I'm like, wow.
0: So you're
2: not charismatic Not in our house. charismatic in our house.
1: My dad's not a Christian, so he thinks this is all mad. Anyway, so she says, call your aunt. And I'm like, I'm not calling that those anti, you know, anti-gay, anti-feminist people, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, I call them. I find out about the prophecy. I'm completely overwhelmed. Go to sleep that night this washing sensation over my soul of just waters, living waters all through my body. And that's the most amazing thing. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, I'm just like, just speaking in this language in the middle of my sleep. And I wake up in the middle of my sleep, I'm like, I'm part of a cult! I'm part of a cult! You know? Because that's, anyway, so that happened. And three weeks later, <laughs> I'm, at, I'm at the film competition in Sydney. There's 50,000 people in this massive park. There's Genevieve's film right there coming up. And I look up, this is the filmmaker, I look up at the star in the sky and I say, all "Right, if you're real, I need a rational sign. I can't give this up without something like, big, God, come on, like, I, just, I can't just have an experience. This has to be also something here, I can't just... So anyway, she wins the film competition, I run down to the red carpet, she's there, she turns around to me and she goes, David, all night, God has been bugging me to tell you that he exists and you just need to know that. okay. (laughs) And so I I turn around, she says, look, meet me on Sunday, and we'll have an interview, and then come to church with me. So she wins a film competition, I go home, I'm floating, can't even speak, just dumbfounded, and then I get to church with her on Sunday, and I find out she's going to the same church as my mother, my uncle, and my aunt, and God had just orchestrated this crazy, divine conspiracy to get me to him. (laughs) <laughs> and it's amazing because so that's the story that
0: how everything wow. yeah. so obviously there's um, an amazing conversion and all sorts of extraordinary experiences um, but then you need to stop living this out yeah. um, and there are really two things I'd love you to sort of touch on if you could one would be um is it realistic this call of God on your life and is it it possible to know that joy and love and fulfilment and to to follow this calling that that God's given you and secondly um, how can we as the church community process in the midst of all the debates and arguing about this subject how can we
1: effective at loving people in our lives. It's great. Great, thanks Amy. Um, look, I'm not going to lie, there were moments where it was incredibly difficult. And I think when we follow Jesus, it is really hard. I mean, there are moments for all of us and we all have our cross. But I think, I'm going to go to an experience I had with the Lord, a reckoning really on this issue. You know, I had a boyfriend for the first year and a half of my walk with Christ, and it wasn't until a year and a half, really, that I started to feel that this wasn't right. And my aunt said to me, she said, you know, she was at the charismatic church and I was going, she said to me, look, I know you can't relate to this culture and it's really foreign to you. She said, look, I know what the Bible says. I believe it's true. But she said, I'm not gay. I don't know what it's like to be like you. I have no idea, David. And so who am I to hold that? of you. She said, I accept you, and I love you, and I will always be here for you, no matter what. I'm here. And she said, all I want is for you to be more filled with the Holy Spirit so that you will know how to live this life. Mm-hmm. And she said, he can teach you. I can't teach you. And I think sometimes we just need to say, I have no idea. <laughs> sometimes we just need to say, that's really hard. I just want to be there for you. and yeah. And just give that, and she said, like, that that unconditional love. Mm. But she did say to me also, she said, unfortunately, if you do have a boyfriend, and I stand by this, our church does not allow you to be a leader, but you are always welcome in our community, and we've decided to draw that line, and I just want you to know we love you no matter what. And it was just, it just gave me freedom. It gave me, like, she didn't try to pretend to know something she didn't, Mm. and then she also, you know, so facilitated that. So that was great, but then I got to France, where I was doing my last year of my international studies degree, and I was stripped of all human intimacy. So I went into this desert season where it just became really hard. And I said to God, I can't do this. I can't, like, I need human intimacy. And I've been to all the churches in Strasbourg, and they're dead, and there is no community. There's no Holy Spirit, really. I mean, he's there, but very faint. And I, God, like, what am I meant to do, you know? I need an answer on homosexuality. I know you just want me to practice your royal law, but come on, like, help me out here. I'm in France, like the romantic kind of country of the world. Like, I just want to go get a boyfriend and have a nice romantic time like everyone else. I'm sending you a birthday present. So I get this birthday present in the mail. It's a book called Washington Waiting by Wesley Hill, if you want to read it. It's great. And just read this book, basically saw my whole story mirrored back at me, I said, God, what are you trying to say to me? And he said, you need to give me your homosexuality. And I was like, it's my precious. (laughs) (laughs) I've invested so much of my life in my gay rights and everything and all the boyfriends and all the time. But Lord, you died on the cross, so you can have anything you want. It's not an idol. It is. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. All right. Okay, you can have it. Fine. And just like handed it over to him. And I kid you not, he filled me with the resurrection power of God from the top of my head to the tips of my toes. That was the most beautiful exchange. And I think Amy and I often talk about how the reformation that needs to happen in the church today is around this this issue of sexuality and the idol of romantic love in pop culture that has basically taken the reins of marriage in Christian churches and made it like this higher... Like kind of thing than what it's really meant to be. And in fact, sex is really about worship. Marriage is about worship. Celibacy is about worship. And if we're trying to be celibate or trying to be married, not as an act of worship, we will find it incredibly difficult. But if we worship through it, through that sacrifice, every day I come into church, I lift my hands, I know I'm giving up my sexuality for him. And it's the most glorious, joy-filled thing. And I have amazing friends that stick by me and are walking that, you know, road with me. I mean, Azalea A.M. has been amazing with that and just walking alongside me. And, you know, so I think it's time for a reformation on this issue and it's time to break the idol. You know, in the Old Testament, it, it's Baal and Ashtaroth. you know, and today it's subtly, more subtly romantic love. So I think when I was freed from that, that idol, it just... It's like my heart was on fire for Jesus, and it's stayed the same ever since. And I think any idol you have, it just crushes your worship. It crushes that inner life with God, that beloved life with Jesus. And so one of the things I often say to Christians, though, is when we're out there in the world, we have to be so careful in the way that we communicate with the gay community. The gay community is so loved by God. Like, God has this crazy love for them, love for me, love for all of us, but just this, like, prophetic desire to touch the gay community. And he loves them. There's no hint of hatred in God's heart. He understands the situation way better than even I do. And he knows (laughs) it way better than even I do. And Jesus lived so many things that were very similar to it. And God has just blessed me with this joy. And so I say to us at the church, I say when we say homosexuality is a sin in the worldview that we live in the secular worldview, what we're saying is the way that you can't have intimacy with God and you can't have intimacy with other people because we've reduced intimacy down to sex and that's romantic love and we don't believe in God anymore so there's no, you're basically deleting that person's existence because without that transcendence they're not like you can't enjoy life mm. there's no real satisfaction and so when we say that that's what people think but we need to show them the positive vision of what it looks like to worship and I was with a, a gay rights activist at a university here in the UK on one of the Ockham missions and I had this really funny exchange and this interfaith discussion of homosexuality and everyone's like Yeah, from my faith. I mean, we think it's wrong, but, like, I don't. I think it's right. It's fine. And I just kind of said, look, I do think it's wrong. But wait, listen to me. And I talked about the Trinity, and I talked about marriage being this glory of God between man and woman. And I can't, as a worshiper of Christ, as much as I'm same-sex attracted, say yes to my own desires, because that's compromising an aspect of my own worship, of the glory of God. And I refuse to do that. I refuse to stand for something that is not the glory of my Lord. And they were like, "Who is this guy?" You know? And then I, and then the gay rights activist friend of mine just across the way pops up and says, "Well, I suppose sex does get a bit old after a while." And then I just said, "But worship doesn't." And you look on his face, it's like that makes sense, because I was showing him that there is another transcendence. Brilliant.
0: Should we stand? Um, I think it'd be great for um, David for you to pray for us about this whole question of, of idols um, and just, just to say that I mean, that's, it's something that that um, we're all in danger of. Um, so do you want to just begin by praying for us into that? <coughs>
1: Holy God, we thank you for the gift of love. Lord, I know that what i said tonight is maybe hard for many in this room, God. And I know it would have been so hard for me to hear something like what I've just said at many points in my walk with you. But Lord, I pray your spirit will come and reveal your love for every individual in this room, God. I pray that we would taste the goodness of your love now. I pray that you would visit us with your spirit. Lord, that you would deliver us from the idol of romantic love that sets itself up against you and says it's more important than you, God. Lord, make us into worshippers, God. Make us into people who know that you are worth everything, body, soul, and spirit, Lord. All every fibre of our being, God. Lord, I pray that you give us the, faith and grace to worship you with every single fiber of our being. Thank you, thank you Lord Jesus. God, Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. We thank you, Lord. We thank you, Father, for your grace. Lord, we ask that you would save people who are same sex attracted that you would save people who are heterosexual or whatever label that we falsely put on ourselves and reduce ourselves to God save us from these labels Lord that reduce us into things that aren't what you've made us to be Lord help us to be the fullness of a human being help us to be made fully in your image God help us to renounce every single grave cloth Lord every cloth that's on us of the grave of mm. our old self, God. Burn it yes. away with your spirit, Lord. Yes, refine yes, us, Lord. Jesus. Refine our hearts. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father. And Lord, we pray that this church will be a place where the gay community can come and be welcomed, yes, Jesus. to be loved, yes, be God. accepted, yes. but also pointed to you yes, as God. the one who is deserving of all our worship? Deserving of all our hearts. Deserving of all our soul. Deserving of all our strength. Deserving of all our body. God, thank you. Amen.
2: Okay, what else just we do is we're gonna sort of as we draw this together, we're gonna move into three different kind uh, of meetings. Simon, where Simon? <laughs> come and tinkle for us and, uh, it's a musical phrase now <laughs> some of us I've think you know you want to honest, just just worship for you know the 10 minutes 15 minutes so, it would be wonderful to do I'm sure there are some people who just love to get some prayer um I want to be absolutely clear that um we're all broken. Jesus told a story, didn't he, about the Pharisee who, like, made out he had his act together. And then the tax collector who just sat there in the corner, not with all the right words, sniveling away, saying, have mercy on me. And Jesus said, he's the one who got hurt by God. We never, ever want to turn into the kind of community where anyone ever feels ashamed just to say, I'm messed up, or I feel broken, or I'm hurting. Because if it's not you today, I'm afraid it might be another day. So we just want to make community an absolute bliss. And so maybe all sorts of things you'd like to receive prayer for. And I just counsel you not to miss the opportunity of this evening. Remember when Jesus was passing through Jericho and blind Bartimaeus cries out, Son of David, i He me. I don't want to miss this moment. And don't miss the moment. And so it, it may be around areas of sexuality. Same sex, you know, heterosexual, uh, brokenness, areas of singleness and celibacy, all sorts of things. But it may also be, do you remember, we had those words earlier about people just feeling exhausted, yeah. and, and God's speaking twice, saying, find rest, rest your soul in me, just want to come and receive some prayer for that. And also, do you remember, we had two separate words about feeling trapped and kicking the door down. And it you want to receive prayer. So there's a whole bunch of reasons you might want to receive some prayer. And if there's anything that you've just heard in David's story, it would seem to me is this. When we ask God, he moves powerfully. Don't just go, and think what well, I was interested in, I analyse You're not just your brain, you're a you. So come and receive prayer, okay? And what we'll do is, we always do prayer kind of over here, so I hate to break the tradition. So what we'll do is... Um, we we'll, we're we'll need to clear a few chairs there. Maybe Mike, you can help with that. And, just, and if you want to see prayer, if you make your way down to my left, to your right, and there'll be people with fresh breath and uh, good people <laughs> who can pray with you. Then